we're going to move into our Bible reading now. Hillary's going to come up. I want to explain what's going on. So we, uh, we have um, excerpts from 21 to 23 of the book of Exodus. Good morning. So as Matt said, our reading is going to start in Exodus uh, chapter 20 and verse 22. Page 78 in the Church Bible, it's up on the screen and on the sheet in front of you. So chapter 20 and verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. We're now going to chapter 21, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. Moving on to chapter 21, verse 12. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Now moving down to chapter 22, verse 1. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. Moving down to verse 16 of chapter 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Do not allow sorceresses to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry, 
My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbour's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbour has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Chapter 23 now, starting at verse 1. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Moving down to verse 10. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unploughed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you, Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Now, chapter 23, verse 19. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. And now chapter 24, verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Hilary breathes a sigh of relief. Thank you, Hilary. Well done reading that massive 
portion of scripture. Um, I think uh, Ben and Nick, when they decided to take a holiday, went through the preaching list <laughs> and, and saw this particular one. I thought, that's a good week to take a holiday. So, um, three chapters of Exodus. Three chapters of detailed and complicated rules and regulations that speak to a culture and a world a million miles away from 21st century Hove on a sunny day. Where do we begin? We pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is a living word. You are the God who spoke these words. You are the God who revealed them to your people for a very definite reason. And you are the God who is speaking to us this morning. And we pray that by by your grace, you would speak to us through these words. Help us to understand and to listen and to learn of who you are, who we are, and what needs to be done, we pray. Amen. So for those who are visiting, for those who are listening online that maybe haven't been following the, the series, let's set the scene. I've got to finish on time, according to the gentleman over there. Fear of death if I don't. So setting the scene, it's six or seven weeks, maybe eight, since um, the, the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. God has led his people Israel through the desert and they've arrived at Mount Sinai. And that's in chapter 19. And there they stay for what's almost a year. And, and they make camp at the base of this mountain. And, and God speaks to Moses and he says to Moses, tell the people, if you obey me fully and if you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations of the earth, you will be my treasured possession. Imagine being the treasured possession of the living God. This is what God promises to his people. If they obey him fully and keep his covenant, you will be my treasured possession. That's chapter 19, verse 5. And with great enthusiasm, the people respond, we will do everything the Lord has said. So picture the people gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. God is about to come down. It's, it's a solemn, it's a sacred and it's a downright scary time for them because the Lord is coming down, the holy, the mighty God of Abraham, the God who's just delivered them from Egypt, the God who had brought these plagues onto the land that they'd seen, they'd witnessed, and they had seen God's power through those plagues, the death of the firstborn, that very dark night, scary time. And then God leading them out and, and the, the Red Sea before them. And then the sea parted and they were led through the Red Sea. This is the God that was about to come down on the mountain. And they were terrified. And to add to their terror, Moses said to them, don't come near the mountain or you will be killed. So in fear of death, they couldn't come near the mountain. So they had three days to get themselves ready, to consecrate themselves. Then the great day approached. And, and, and to add some drama to it, thunder and lightning and thick cloud comes down over the mountain. Smoke billowed up. And the whole mountain, it says, trembled violently. Imagine sitting there at the base of the mountain. And this is going on. God is coming down. 
And then to add to it, the trumpet sounded like a siren. Get ready. This is it. Moses ascended up the mountain. They watched him go up to meet with God. So they're ready to hear God's voice. And God sends him back down again and says, tell the people, don't come near for fear of death. And then God speaks in chapter 20. And God speaks the Ten Commandments. These are the laws you are to obey and follow. And the people, it says in 20 verse 18, they trembled with fear. And a good thing, says Moses, because the fear of God will keep you from sinning. That's a sermon in itself, isn't it? Really, The fear of God will keep you from sinning. And God continues, having given the Ten Commandments, in chapters 21 to 23, which is our, our huge passage this morning, he applies these rules and regulations to, to the life and the situations that these people are going to find and face in the promised land, in the land that God is going to lead them into. We, we could call them case laws in a way. That these are the situations they're likely to find and bearing these things in mind, they can then live their lives in obedience to God. And they sound strange, don't they, to our 21st century ears. How many people here this morning are having baby goat cooked in its mother's milk? for their Sunday lunch. And you think, well, I better not do that anymore. Not many, and so on. And, and they, they seem inappropriate, don't they, in many ways, to our modern way of life. So what relevance do they have? And at the end of these three chapters of detailed, and they are detailed instructions, and as the Bible goes on, they get even more detailed. We, we read of the response of the people to his covenant or his agreement between them. It's like a binding legal document. And did they say, hmm, that, that's very interesting, Lord. Thank you very much. But um, is there something perhaps a little less demanding on our side of the covenant? Or, or is there a plan B that we can maybe try that one instead? If, if these kind of laws and regulations are given to us, I think that might have been our response, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's fine, but... Something perhaps a little bit less demanding. But no, that the people we read in, in verse 3 of chapter 24, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. And then they slept on it. They, they thought about it. And Moses gets out this written book of the covenant. This is what these three chapters are. The next day, and he says to them, he reads it to them, and they say again, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. So there they are, dead keen. So that's the background, that's the contents. Let's spend a short while looking at what they are agreeing to do. God's demands in the book of the covenant. Unlike the Ten Commandments, the foundations of, of God's law that were written on stone, these laws are quite detailed and God clearly spells out to his people what he wants them to do and who he wants them to be, the kind of people he wants them to be. And what they're going to be is a very different, a very distinct kind of people from the, from the nations round about them, from the nation they've come from and the nations that they're going to take their land away from them. That They are to be God's holy people. They are to be God's righteous people. They are to be people who reflect the very nature of the God whom they serve. And, and these rules, if we kind of put them all together, we, we can't go through them individually. We'd be, we'd, 
long past the football match. It'll be over and England would have won, lost or whatever it might be. But we're going to look at them as a whole and, and try to learn something from them. And, and they deal, first of all, in their relationship with God because that's the most important thing, in their, what we call their vertical relationship. And in their relationship with God, God is to have absolute authority and rule over them. Absolute. It's not a democracy. They, they are going to enter into theocracy. God is their God. He is their king. He is their Lord. And he himself is the object of their worship. Not the stones, not the buildings, not, not the things round about them. But he, his person, is to be the object of their worship. No other gods, no other idols, him alone. And, and they are to celebrate this relationship with God. We're told of the three festivals that they have throughout the year. Festivals that that remember what God has done to them, the coming out of Egypt, of the land of slavery, to to celebrate what God is providing for them in their crops, in their lands, and they're to to rest too in what God has done and who God is in relationship to them. They're to have a Sabbath. They're to rest They're they're flocks, they're to rest themselves, they're to rest their land. God understands that they need to rest and they're to rely upon this God to guide them, to lead them, to provide for them, to drive out the nations and the people before them. So in their relationship with God, God requires absolute faith and utmost obedience. That is their worship that God requires of them. Absolute faith utmost obedience secondly these rules and regulations speak of their relationship with each other and their relationship to the society uh, that they are around their horizontal relationship as it were and and this forms the bulk of these three chapters that there's lots of do's lots of don'ts and then they deal with social issues legal issues family issues you name it these things are dealing with them and they are very practical, aren't they? And they give them an understanding of what, what God wants them to do and who God wants them to be. To summarise the whole lot with a great big paintbrush, as it were, that they are to love God in a wholehearted, single-minded devotion and obedience. That what God, that's what God wants them to do, and that's the kind of people that God wants them to be. And they are to love and serve others with kindness, with justice, with mercy, with compassion, very much unlike the nations that they've come from, very much unlike the nations that they're going to go into, that they are to love and serve one another. These things were radical in their, in their thinking and understanding. This is what God requires of his people in this covenant. That's fine, say the people. We will do it. We will do it. We've got this wholehearted, yeah, yeah, Moses, this is God's covenant. We will do it. And what confidence, didn't they? They had in their ability. How does their devotion and service play out in the, the, the weeks, the months, the years that follow on? How do they live up to their expectation? They fail. They fail miserably in their, their side of the covenant, their side of the agreement. So did God set the bar too high for them? Did he give them an impossible target to reach? And sometimes when we hear the law preach, when we hear it, it's like we, we, we can never get there. 
Because God's purpose in these rules, in setting these roles, was not to give, give them really a, a code to live by. God's purpose was to show them their utter inability to keep his law. In, it, these things are given to expose the sinfulness of their hearts. They just couldn't do it. They thought they could. They really wanted to. But in reality, from the, from the word go, they just couldn't do it. And Paul, in, in the book of Romans, spends quite a long time arguing this. Paul was, was a fervent Jew. He was, as far as legalistic righteousness goes, he said, I was perfect. He thought he was good enough to keep God's law, and he tried. But then Paul came to understand that. And he, he said, in Romans chapter 3, it's through the law that we become conscious of our sin. That the law kind of exposes our, our sin as to what it really is. We can never keep God's law to this standard that he requires. And these people, they wanted to do good. They did, yeah, yeah, we can do it, we can do it. We will obey, but they couldn't. They couldn't do it. And, and Paul, in his arguments with the Romans, goes on. And, and in chapter 7, there's this brilliant argument that Paul, Paul explains. And it, it's, it's summarized in this verse 19 of chapter 7. Paul says, this, this is the response. This is how we feel in our hearts. I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. That's the state of humanity in the presence of God. That's probably our experience. I want to do good, but you know what? The, the bad I don't want to do, I just keep on doing. That, that's, that's the human heart. And as we continue in this story of Exodus and in the weeks ahead, even within a few days, within a, within a few days, these very people who said, yeah, 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 we can do that. What are they doing? They're building an idol of gold and they're worshipping that. They're having a party. They've got the musicians out and they're, they're doing some debauched kinds of things. Even while Moses was up on the mountain talking to God. And sadly, that, that's the Old Testament story, isn't it? The failure of Israel to keep God's commands. The failure of Israel again and again. And, and, and in the stories it goes on, we have highs and lows. And, and it rises to a great high under Solomon when they're actually living as God wanted to them to live. And, and Israel as a nation is so prosperous that people come from around the world to see them. And, and in the great history of Israel, what, 1,500 years? There's about 30 years when they're living as God wanted them to live in righteousness, in holiness, and with wisdom ruling them. But in the rest of the time, honestly, the valleys and the deeps are so deep. And God was showing them and us who read these stories that the accounts, the impossibility of living a life fully devoted to God and serving each other in the way that we would like to do and God wants us to do. We'd like to keep his law, because we want to be his treasured possession. That's something to be desired, isn't it? Named for. To be God's pres treasured possession is, is the great prize in life. And sometimes we think we can. Sometimes we think we can. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can keep God's laws. No problems at all. Doing all right. So has God failed? Has God failed then to make these people his treasured possession? Not at all. It's not an easy task and the work goes on because now on in the Bible story, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the, the, the rules and the regulations get even more complicated. And as we in 21st century hove this morning, we look back, don't we, in faith to that perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. 
The, the reality that God was doing, it cast a shadow, didn't it, back into history, way back to Genesis. And as we look back to the perfect sacrifice of Christ, these people in the Old Testament could look forward to that and in faith get exactly what we've got, God's forgiveness. So, so our ancient Old Testament brothers and sisters look forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He kept the law of God. He obeyed fully the Ten Commandments. He obeyed fully the covenant of works. What we couldn't do, he did. He was completely righteous before God, and he lived in perfect fellowship with God. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, this perfect man, took our sin our inability to do these good things, our rebellious acts and nature, he took those things upon himself. They were imputed to him. Hence the agony of Gethsemane, the agony of the cross. Imagine that righteous soul and heart of Jesus then being imputed with with our unrighteous acts. It was agony for him. When you read the account of Gethsemane, when when that sin was put upon him for him to die the very next or later on in the day, there he bore the just punishment of a holy God in our place. We sing the hymn, don't we? In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. And the sacrifice was accepted. Jesus paid our debt in full. And having paid it, he rose again. The, 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 The debt was paid And he lives and he reigns forever. And our sinful nature that prevents us from obeying God was crucified with him. Our old nature died with him on the cross. And we were raised again to life in him. So our old nature, that we can't do things good, is paid for, is sorted out. We're forgiven. And if you think that's the good news of the gospel, there's more. It goes on because our sinful nature was imputed to Christ. So his righteous nature has been imputed to us, to all who believe in him. We who were once separated from God because of our sins are not just forgiven, but we're brought near by the blood of Jesus, by his death. We've been reconciled with the holy and the living God. Our hearts, once the home of sin, become the dwelling place of God. Our hearts have a new master, new life, eternal life in length and depth is ours as a gift from a merciful father because of the sacrificial death of Christ. So are we perfect? Are we now perfect because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us? Yes and no. Yes, because we can enter the presence of God without fear, knowing that he sees the righteousness of Christ. What do we call him when we enter his presence? This living, this holy God. Father, how tender and sweet is that? That's our relationship with this holy living God. He is our Father in heaven. So yes, he sees when he looks upon us the righteousness of Christ. But are we perfect? No. Because although the rule and sin has been broken, the rule, and defeated in our hearts, its presence remains and I think if I did a, a, you know, a roll call here, who still sins? Who still is aware of that work of sin in their hearts? I think there would be a 100% tally going on there. But like the Israelites of old entering the promised land, 
we need to fight and to overcome. That's the Christian fight. And it's a glorious and a worthy fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil himself. Life is tough serving Christ, living out the life he wants us to live. But sin is no longer our master. Christ is our master. Christ is our Lord and King. We can love God wholeheartedly. We can love each other like never before. We can do the very things that these people of Israel thought they could do and couldn't. We can. And a baby needs to grow and develop, doesn't it? And as Christians, our entrance into the faith, we're born again into the kingdom of God. And so we need to grow in knowledge and wisdom and stature in Christ. We leave foolish and childish ways behind and we press on to take hold of the life for which Christ has laid hold of us. So what of God's law? Does it still apply, the moral law? The law that was written on on stone by the finger of God? Yes, it does. But it's no longer written on stones. It's written in our hearts by the finger of God. That 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 very law that those people were unable to do and we we struggle to do, it's something we we want to do. We, We feel we desire to do it. As David the psalmist said, I love your law, O Lord. To love God and to love each other is something that we want to do, desire to do. And God will help us to do that. Not to earn or merit God's blessing. We already have that. We are in Christ, God's treasured possession. And like the Israelites of old, we need to celebrate that. We are God's treasured possession. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's just something that will begin to come naturally. You will want to do it. You will, you will obey me. And we, we obey and worship to please God. That's what we do. That's what God has put within our hearts. So that, in a summary, is... Exodus chapter 21, 22, and 23, applied to the 21st century. And we've done it on time, Roger, so there you go. Let's end this morning as the Apostle Paul ended in Romans chapter 7. At the end of his argument, the Apostle Paul, who was, who'd persecuted Christians, who'd come to see that this God had done all that he'd done in Christ, then at the end of his argument, Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers me Through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's my prayer, it's surely the prayer here, that we can all pray that. Thanks be to God who has delivered me, who goes on delivering me, who will deliver me. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, answer the prayer of the Apostle Paul, we pray. Answer that prayer in all of our hearts. Deliver us to the glory and praise of your name, we pray. Amen.